Good morning, Grace. Grace and peace be unto all of you. This morning, we'll be reading from Exodus 20, 1 through 11. If you are looking at your pew Bible, it is on page 6-1, page 6-1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a, a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not take hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of the living God. Good morning again. We're in the book of Exodus, second book in the Bible. This is the amazing account, the historical account of how God reveals himself to the people of Israel, rescues them out of slavery, gives them freedom, and then invites them into this special relationship with himself, this covenant relationship with himself. And we're, we're right in the middle of this book, uh, this series called Exodus from Slavery to Glory. We're out of slavery now. We're actually seeing some of God's glory right here in chapters 19 and 20. And in Exodus 20 is a major section, one of the most important parts of, of the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures. It's the giving of the Ten Commandments. This is so important that we're going to spend two weeks here in this chapter. God literally comes down and speaks His words, His law, or as God will say later in the Old Testament, the ten words. The ten words. Today we're going to look at the first four commands. And then next week, the next six, the final six. Today we're looking at worshiping the one true God. Worshiping the one true God. The first four commands that Antonio read focus on our worship of God our relationship with God, our view of God. And as soon as you read these words, you shall have no other gods before me. We are confronted with this reality that often gets overlooked in 21st century living, living in the West, living in America. And, and here's that reality that gets overlooked. There are many things, you can call them gods, that are vying for your allegiance and your heart, our hearts, 
will be drawn to them. That's what gets overlooked. There are many things, many gods, many um, things that attract our hearts, that are vying for our hearts' allegiance, and we are drawn to them. In these Ten Commandments, God is inviting us to acknowledge Him as the supreme authority over our lives. That He is calling His people into this relationship where they worship Him exclusively. But He knows that the tendency of the human heart is to look to lesser gods, lesser things, to fill that void in our hearts, this longing for meaning and significance. We are looking for something in the world, something to center our lives on. It's like the sun. Everything revolves around the sun. It's like there's this, there's this pull and, we, and it revolves. And that's how the universe exists. That's how our galaxy exists. But if you put the earth in the center, it's done. It doesn't work that way. So let me ask you as we get started, do you know who or what you are worshiping today? You might be here and say, look, I'm not really religious. My mom invited me, my friend invited me. I'm interested to learn about how to live a good moral life. Okay. You say, I don't worship anything. I can appreciate that. I would humbly propose to you this morning that you are a worshiper. You just may have never used that language before. Or you might say, I'm a Christian. I worship God and God alone. Really? I think for most of us, the challenge this morning is to be open to the idea that your worship has not been exclusive to God. That even as a Christian, we're looking at these first four commands, right? The next six, and you're like, okay, yeah, we got some work to do with each other. But even these first four in relationship to God, we have broken the commands of God. Let me show you what I mean. Lesson number one that we learn from this text. Respond to God's holy love by obeying his word. Respond to God's holy love by obeying his word. Look at verse one. Before you get into the actual commandments, I want you to appreciate how this chapter starts, how God frames the giving of the law. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God is speaking. But to whom is he speaking? Is it just Moses? Every other time Moses went up to the mountain, God spoke to Moses, he comes back down, this is what God says. Is he just speaking to Moses? No, one verse ahead, chapter 19, verse 25. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Moses is at the foot of the mountain. Remember, the mountain is swirling with thunder and lightning and it's storming, right? God's holiness is manifested before them and it's, and it's, and it's terrifying to them. And it'll even say in verse, uh, verse 18 and 19 that they were terrified by this. But God's presence begins to be manifested on the mountain. Moses is down at the foot of the mountain with all the other people and all of them hear the voice of God. They directly hear The voice of God. God comes down. 
the one who delivered them out of Egypt with miracles, now comes down and speaks to them. And he gives them his law. And the law, these words he's going to give to them, are the terms of the relationship between him and them. Here's the terms of what it looks like to be in relationship with me. These words are the basis of his covenant. That's what I'm saying. His covenant. The word covenant means a binding commitment. God says, here are the the terms. I have committed myself to you. I'm inviting you to commit yourself to me. I want to give you the law. And listen, the law, he's telling them right up front, the law is so much more than a list of do's and don'ts. That's what we try to boil it down to, but it's so much bigger than that. This is about God giving himself to his people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out. Why does he say that? They know that. Why, does, why are the first words out of his mouth not do this? Why are they rather, here's who I am? You, you, when you read the Bible, you do have to have a level of curiosity to, to, to begin to interpret. What's going on here? Why is he doing this? Look, God is reminding them of who he is and what he has done before he invites them to listen and obey him. I am, he says, your God. Notice that? God is saying, I am your creator. I am the one who formed you. When we say that these children are gifts from the Lord, that he created them, we don't just mean them, we mean them and all of us. And it also means that we are his. We belong to him. But not only that, he says, I am the Lord, your God. I am Lord. I am Lord in all caps. That's the the divine name of God in the Old Testament. I mean, it's the word Yahweh. Or maybe you've heard Jehovah growing up. Yahweh, God, God is saying, I am a personal and faithful God. I'm a God who rescues you out of grace. I brought you out of slavery. I've led you through the wilderness. I've provided for you every step of the way. He's telling his people right up front, look, did you do anything to deserve this? Do you think you're hot stuff? No. And look, the same goes for us. Jesus rescues us out of slavery to sin. He offers us forgiveness. And then he says, is it because you are more righteous than anyone else? No. It's all grace. What is God saying here before he actually gives the law? He's saying to his people, see how much I love you. See how much I'm giving myself to you. I'm not holding anything back. I give myself entirely to you first. This is how God has always worked. This is God's pattern. God frees us by his grace. Grace means undeserved love. He, He rescues us from the powers that destroy us. He gives us new life. And then he calls us to respond in obedience. Another way to say that is, the grace that saves always precedes the law that demands. The grace that saves always precedes or comes before the law that demands. This has always been God's pattern for for his people, for us, all throughout history. He says, I give myself to you. I commit myself to you. Now worship me exclusively. Listen to me. Obey me. Can you appreciate how holy and loving the God of the Bible is? I know there are parts in the Bible that are confusing. I know there are things written in God's word that are hard to swallow. But this is is God clearly showing himself to us. 
This is a clear window into his character right from the very law itself that obedience flows from love. Obedience flows from what love. Obedience flows from our love for God, but really obedience flows from his love to us. A couple things about the law of God before we get into the specifics. We're, we got to talk about this, and, and next week we'll talk more about the purpose of the law. Two things about the law of God. First, the law is good. The law is good because it reflects the character of God. The law of God is good because it reflects the character of God. Paul affirms this in the New Testament. He says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You say the law is so restrictive. It's so binding. It feels so like, ah, I just want to be free. Do you really? Listen, let's do a thought experiment. Let's imagine a world where there are no laws. Is that real freedom? Is that what you want? Or do you have to go back to school and read Animal Farm? See, I don't like that book. Well, I don't like it either. But it's a powerful story of anarchy. The law is good because it reflects the character of God. And when we live in obedience to his words, to his law, actually we, we image God more fully. God gave these to reflect his character. And if we reflect his character because we're made in his image, then if we were to live by them, we would live fully human lives. Another thought experiment. Could you imagine if every human lived by the Ten Commandments? Paradise, right? Worship God alone. Don't do anything wrong to each other. Live in harmony. Beauty. It's amazing. The law is good because it reflects the character of God. Number two, the law is also loving. The law is also loving. We think the law is in contrast to love. Just like parents, we think the law is, is in, like when, when parents give, uh, give rules or boundaries, we think that's kind of like, ah, oh, now you've moved from loving us to like having to discipline us. No. No, it's out of the love that we give the law, that we give rules. It, lo, the law is the way love is expressed from God. In fact, Jesus, when he was asked by someone, Jesus, summarize the entire law. What's the greatest commandment in the law? Notice what, he's, what the guy's asking. What is the greatest commandment? And what does Jesus say? He connects the commandment to love. He says, I'll tell you what the greatest commandment is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is just as important, like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the prophets and the law hang on these two, he says. He connects law to love. The law is how love is expressed. Now, we're going to look at these first four commandments. These first four are vertical commandments. In other words, it's how we relate to God, how we treat God. The next six are, are horizontal, how we relate to one another. And there's a reason why God structures the ten this way. Because how we worship God impacts how we treat other people. The law shows us how to worship and love God properly. What do I mean by that? I mean, we don't get to love God however we want. We don't just get to say, here's how I love, and I'm going to love God this way. God says, no, here's who I am, and here's how you'll love me. 
Here's what's actually loving. If I decide to show my wife love for her birthday, and I say, you know what, I'm going to plan this awesome celebration for her, and, and, and here's what I'm going to do, because I love her so much, I'm going I'm to plan a round of golf for her and my two best friends and I. Oh, we're going to go to this beautiful golf course, and a couple guys here are going to join us. And then after golf, what, what can we do? I'm going to go, we want to go to a, a restaurant where we eat wings, lots and lots of wings. And there's sports playing all over, every single sport you can imagine. And then to, to cap this night off, I want to I show a movie, and we're going to watch The Lord of the Rings. And there's going to be great battles, and they're going to be slashing and killing, and oh, yeah. Ba- baby, isn't that beautiful? Right? Isn't this a beautiful night, a beautiful day of celebrating you? That would be an awesome day, but for whom? <laughs> Am I loving her? I'm loving me. God literally says, this is how you love me. Listen and obey my words. Don't think for a second you can decide you know how to love and worship God on your own. You can create a God in your own image and worship that God, but you're not creating this God, the real God. God starts, verse 1 and 2, by saying, this is who I am. Do you know how much I love you? Do you see me giving my law as an act of my love, as I've already rescued you, and out of that love, now I'm giving you the law. Keep that in mind when you begin to hear what I'm about to say to you. I'm not giving my law as a way of punishing you. It's a way of loving you. Okay. Lesson number two. God deserves your wholehearted worship. God deserves your wholehearted worship. Verse 3, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This first commandment makes clear that atheism is not an option, nor is pantheism. We cannot say there's no God, and we cannot say there's many gods. There is only one God. Remember, Israel lived as slaves in Egypt, in ancient Egypt, where there were dozens and dozens of gods that were worshipped. And they're entering a land, the land of Canaan, where the Canaanites are worshipping many gods as well. And in the midst of all this, God is calling his people to exclusive covenant loyalty to him. Worship Yahweh alone. He alone is God. When he says, no other gods before me, the word before is interesting. It, it means in the face of, in the presence of. God's tr- he's getting at something important. He's saying, look, there, there are no gods. You can, there can be no gods right next to me, no gods beside me, no gods competing with me. This is the first commandment for a reason. In, in, in essence, this is the foundational commandment. God is offering the most important solution to the deepest problem of the human heart. And I said it from the beginning. Every person here is a worshiper. In other words, the word worship simply means we value something. Worth-ship is the old Latin. Worth is something is value, something has worth. We worship what we find value in. 
That's why, it's about, that's why this is the first commandment. It's not about external do's and don'ts. It's about the heart. God is, God is going right to the heart. Yes, it's a sin to steal, but sin is not just, uh, sin is not just about breaking rules. Do you understand that? St. Augustine said the essence of sin is disordered love. Do you know what he means? It's not about, the essence of sin isn't breaking rules, it's about disordered loves. Here's what Augustine means. He means that, that we often love less important things too much, and we, all, and we often love more important things too little, and because of that, it leads to unhappiness and disorder in our lives. Not only are you a worshiper, not only do you find value in things in life, you and I tend to worship things other than God. And the Bible calls this idolatry. Idolatry is putting someone or something else in the place of God, beside God. And that's the deepest problem of the human heart. It's our idolatry. If you want to understand how this works, you can read Romans chapter 1, where Paul teaches that we are wired to worship. We are wired by God, created by God to worship Him as our Creator, that He alone satisfies our hearts. And yet, we are drawn to all kinds of created things, things on this earth, things that we can see and feel and touch, that, 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 that we think will give us value, things that we think will satisfy. When I say idolatry, don't think, oh, I worship this statue, I worship this plant. No, no, we we. We worship things that we find value in. And so whatever you value most for you, that is what you worship. Whatever you worship is your functional God. So I think the question you need to ask and I need to ask regularly is, what do you value most in life? Don't start with, what am I worshiping? Start, start, start more basic. What do you value what are the things in life that you feel like this matters most? This is my thing, or these are my things. Look, you have to ask these questions honestly. Do you value your health above all else? Do you value your job, your career above all else? Do you value money? Above, do you value being accepted by others, being liked by others? Do you value being respected by your kids? Do you value, what do you, what, what do you value most? Feeling loved, your family, whatever it is. You say, Mark, those are all good things. They're not even bad things. I know. That's the sneaky thing about idolatry. Don't you see, idolatry is not taking just bad things and making them God things. The idolatry for many people is taking good things and elevating them to ultimate things. And that becomes what drives you. And that becomes what's most important. And, that's, and that becomes what you have determined that will make you happy. You see, what drives us to worship idols is that we think we can be in control. That's why we worship things other than God. We think, if I, can, if I can decide what to worship, if I can decide what my value is in, if I can decide, then I will be more in control than if I were to devote my life to God. Because I know what that means. I know what it means. If I, do, if I devote my life to God, then he can tell me who I can marry. And he can tell me how to use my money. 
And he, he's going to have to tell me how I treat people. And he can even do, tell me how I'm supposed to think and feel. And I am not in control with that. And so what do, what do, you, what do we do? Oh, well, we, we try to do other things and say, this is my God because I can control it. And so we worship idols thinking there's greater control. But look, that's an illusion. It's an illusion to think that if you create a God in your own image, if you worship another God, that you are in more, you're in control. That's an illusion. Because whatever you worship is always in control of your life. Whatever you worship has the power. If you live for success, then success has the control in your life. It's going to drive you. It's going to determine your decisions. It's going to determine your choices. If you live for your kids, they're going to drive you. They're going to control you. Believe me, while idols are not God, they have the power in your life and they have the power to destroy your life. If your idol is, I must feel loved. At all costs, this is my highest value. Then when you go through a rough patch in your marriage or in a friendship or you don't feel loved in some way, you're going to say, that's it, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. No, 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 no. I'm cutting this off. Or you'll feel, or you'll feel and there's probably what's behind that, I, you feel worthless. You feel like I'm a nobody. You need to know that an idol always, always demands more than you can give and never gives you what you need. An idol will always demand more from you than you can give and never give you what you need. Have you made something more important than God? Have you ever loved yourself more than God? That's idolatry, and that's breaking the first commandment. Let's look at the second commandment. You shall not make, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that's in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity or the sin of the fathers on the, to, on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This command goes right along with the first one. It's a warning against making any object of worship. God is saying, I cannot be represented by something you make. Now, the Israelites would break this command very soon. Like, in just a couple chapters, Moses goes up on the mountain with God, and the people are like, uh, it's been uh, long enough. Uh, it's been too long. Aaron, make something. We need to worship. Oh, can't you see? They have to worship. They make, make something. We need to worship. He makes this golden calf. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. The reformer John Calvin was absolutely correct when he said this. Our hearts are idol factories. In other words, they're endless idols. Because of the sin in our heart or the selfishness in our hearts, we find it incredibly easy to take good things and make them into ultimate things, make them into God things. Again, doesn't that tell you something about us as people? Even if you're not religious and you say, I don't worship, I don't have any gods. Yeah, you may not worship any religious gods, but you have to come to grips that you still worship. Look, what are the gods of our culture? What are the prominent gods? Sexual freedom and identity, right? That is ruling and reigning. Self-determinism, 
is a God. I get to determine who I am. I get to determine what I be without any rules, any regulations to that. Unhindered determinism. Power, beauty, that's a God. Oh, that's all, that's all social media is. Well, who's beautiful? How do I become beautiful like that? Who looks good? How do I become like that? Money, we all worship something. And we all have things that we say, look, if I don't have this thing, my life is meaningless. I don't have a reason to keep on living. And I'm asking you, do you know what those things are for you? The second commandment is a warning. Don't reduce God to something of your own making. It's a warning. Don't think of him according to your own ideas rather than according to the revelation of his word. Why do we make idols? So that we can reduce God down to something we can manage. Have you reduced God to some manageable size so that you can say, ah, now I, now I can feel like I can worship that kind of God. I don't like this parts of the Bible, right? The Thomas Jefferson Bible, ever heard that? You, ever, you know what Thomas Jefferson did? He would read parts of the Bible. Oh, miracle, whoosh, that's gone. Oh, another miracle, whoosh, that's gone. And he was up this really dinky little thing and said, here's my Bible. Oh, great. Great. Now, he was a deist. He believed in God. He didn't believe in the God of the Bible, but he believed in God. But you know what? He believed in a God of his own making. This by itself is not God. This is who God is. This is what he's revealed himself to be. We, we, we can't package him in a way that we can say, ah, now I can worship this God. God explicitly says he doesn't want us creating images or worshiping false gods. Why? Because he's a jealous God. A jealous God. We could spend a whole sermon on that, but let me just kind of boil it down. In other words, he alone is worthy of our worship, and he knows it. This commandment speaks of God's justice and mercy. He says, I'll visit the iniquity or punish the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Now, to some people, this seems unfair. Is God saying he's holding grandkids responsible for what their grandparents do? And the answer is no. No. What he's saying is that what the grandparents do will have a direct impact in the life of their children and grandchildren and maybe even great-grandchildren. If grandpa is worshiping a false god in Israel, if he's murdering, if he's stealing, you better believe it's going to have an impact on the entire family unit. In America, children of alcoholics are four times more likely to become alcoholics than other children. Now, you can argue nurture versus nature, but that's the reality of what we're dealing with. God is showing us the sobering reality that our sin impacts others. That's what he's saying here, that no one sins in isolation. Do you think that your sin doesn't harm anyone else? You ever fall into that trap? Because I have. We're fooling ourselves. You're hurting the people around you. You say, Mark, it's just an attitude. No, it's, 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 it's affecting your family. It's affecting your friends. It's affecting the church body. It's affecting the community. Don't think you can sin in isolation. That's what he's saying. Notice he says, visiting the iniquity to third, third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God is not saying, oh, anyone who sins, up oh, third and fourth, that's it. It's done. You're doomed. No, this isn't about God waiting for any little slip-up to nail us. 
This is a warning to those who persist in unbelief and rejection. Of those who hate me. Please hear me. There's good news this morning. The cycle of sin and suffering can be broken through repentance. Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Right now, right then, there's freedom. But that's not all. Verse 6. Showing steadfast love to thousands, or it says, or, or the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is how merciful and grace-filled our God is. You see, the God of the Old Testament feels so, so stuffy, right? So rule-based. Really? I will punish. I'm just. But I want to bless you to the thousandth generation. Does that feel stuffy? Does that feel like, oh, he's withholding himself? No, he's given himself entirely to his people. He's saying, look, my love shows no limits. That's what I want to show to you. That's what I want to give to you. Do you see how much greater his grace flows from him than even his judgment? Do you see the heart of God here? I will punish because that's what justice requires. But oh, my heart longs and is ready to bless and love my people. Third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord your God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What is God getting at here in this command, this third command? God's name is the revelation of God himself. When he says, I'm Yahweh, and, we, and you go back to listen to Exodus 3 sermon, his name is who he is. It's his character. God's name represents God. And so the command is this. God is to be highly valued. He's worthy of the highest honor even in how you talk about him. Practically, this means we are on guard against using God's name falsely. We don't use God's name to deceive other people. That's often why people, how people use swears, right? When they swear to God, they're trying to do something. I want you to believe me. I'm willing to even say this. No, no. Don't drag God into that, into your mess, into your junk. That's your stuff. But it also means God, it means God guarding against God's name and using God's name in a disrespectful way. Why, why, do, we swear, why do people swear to God and why do people add God to, to swear words? Because we're dragging God in. We, 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 somehow we, we know that there's something, something honorable, something greater about God, and if we can bring him into this thing, it makes it harder, harsher, more serious, more insulting. And really what that points to is we know there's honor to God in his name, so honor his name. Represent him well. You bear his name, Christian, you know that? He lives in you if you're a Christian. His reputation is attached to us. We need to be mindful. Are we using God's name in a way that honors him, honors his reputation, or damages his reputation? And by what we say or do. Then the fourth commandment. Remember this, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner 
who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Notice the, the, the Sabbath, the command to honor the Sabbath is rooted in the creation account. He said, God says, I created everything in six days, and on the seventh day I rested. And I think by implication we should hear that and go, and God didn't need to rest, did he? So why did he rest? To create a pattern. To create a pattern for us to follow as, as those who image him, who bear his image. That he created this rhythm of work and rest. Work and rest. You work six days, you rest a day. You work hard six days. You do, you do gainful work. You go out and you work hard and then you rest. Even when all the other people around you are working seven days, they were to demonstrate their faith in a God who provided for all of their needs and here is one visible representation of their faith. On this Sabbath day, we will do no work and we will show, and we will show, show the world and communicate to the world we trust in a God who provides. We don't think we are our own providers. That's what they were doing. And notice, no work for anyone. Children, servants, right? The dignity of humanity here. The Sabbath day was a day of remembering God as their creator, the one who provides everything. And if you look at Deuteronomy 5, it was a way of remembering God as their redeemer, the one who rescued them. Connecting back to verse 2. So as Christians, are we required to keep the Sabbath? This is the only one that there's like, uh, what do we do with this? The answer is this. As Christians, we as, as I, I'll say, I believe, Brady and I, the pastors mostly believe that we are to observe the principle of Sabbath, but not necessarily the day. We are to observe the principle of Sabbath, but not necessarily the day. Paul told the church in Colossians, Colossians 2, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, and with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What do you mean? No one judges you based on what you choose to have as your Sabbath, your day of rest? Yes. No one judges you based on if you, if you eat crawfish or not? Yes. No one judges if you love crabs? Yes. Nor which day you choose to, to rest. Why? Because all of these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So, Paul is suggesting that the seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday, that's what the Sabbath is. It's in all its Jewish ceremonies and customs has been set aside. But the principle remains. That's why the early church chose the first day of the week, Sunday, as their day of rest and worship. Why? Because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead, right? They began their week with rest. They didn't end their week with rest, which again is a whole other sermon. But we rest as a way of trusting that God is our provider and we worship as a way of trusting Jesus as our Savior. So here's the question. Does your rhythm of work, rest, and worship make it clear that you are trusting God rather than yourself for your provision and your security? Does your rhythm of work, rest, and worship make it clear to you and to those around you that you are trusting God and not yourself for your provision 
and your security? Or does your rhythm make it look like you got what it takes to provide for all of your needs? What do we do with these four commands, these vertical commands? We can't keep them. God calls us to. God deserves our wholehearted worship. What, does it, what do we do? What do we, what do we do? Here's the third lesson. Jesus makes it possible for you to wholeheartedly worship God. When you look at Israel's history, you find that these four commands get them into trouble. They keep worshiping false gods, golden calf, Canaanite gods, and they're sent into exile in Babylon because they don't honor the Sabbath. That's how serious that one is. So this wasn't just their problem, it's our problem as well. We don't, we don't worship the right God and we don't worship him rightly. We struggle with idolatry. So what are we to do? What do we to do with this? First, again, going back to what we said before, you need to identify the idols of your heart. You see, the law exposes that sin, but it can't deal with it. It doesn't have a remedy for it. As humans, we're capable of doing beautiful, amazing things. And yet, we are still God-rejectors. We still worship false gods. We still worship the God of self. Can I just ask you, have you kept the Ten Commandments? Nope. We're doomed at number one. I know that our Western culture rejects this. I know that. I know that it, our culture finds it deeply offensive to say that the problems of our world find their source not in the evil outside of us, but in the evil inside of us. I know that sounds offensive. We promote things that build self-esteem to help people, people feel better about themselves. And yet the irony is, the more we promote self-esteem, the more frustrated, the more anxious, and the more insecure we become as a people. We need to face reality. We were designed to worship God, but we keep worshiping false gods. But here's the good news. While the law does expose our sin, it also points us to our Savior. You say, how does it point to Jesus? How does it point to our Savior? Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law condemns us, doesn't it? It says we're wrong. It points to ways that, 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 that we could be made right with God. We just can't do it. But then Jesus comes along. It, Jesus comes along. And, and what Paul is saying here is that the law points to Jesus. It points for this need for someone who can fulfill all of it, someone who can do all of it, right? There's blessings and cursings that come with the law, and all we get is keep getting cursings as a people of Israel. What do we do? Until We need someone who can come and literally do it all. And just like God came down in Exodus 20, he comes down in the fire and smoke and he speaks his words to his people. Look, 2,000 years later, thousands of years later, Jesus will come down and he will be the word of God to his people. He will be God's presence speaking to his people. God, Jesus is God incarnate. He is Yahweh in the flesh. And if you read the Gospels, you find Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. He always worshiped God the Father exclusively. He never reduced God to an image. He was the image of God. He always revealed God's name in the most honorable of ways. And he kept the Sabbath holy, often by doing good on the Sabbath to show the true significance of it. 
Jesus Christ is the law giver in, in Exodus 20, and then he's the law keeper. Jesus is Yahweh. He lived a fully human life. He merited all the blessings of obeying the law. And then we look at this perfect human and we're like, we don't know what to do with that. We don't, do we? Someone who could literally live the life you and I could never live, we didn't know what to do with that. And what did they do? And what would we have done if we were there? We would have crucified him just like them. We would have said, no, we can't handle that. They put Jesus on a cross. Why? Why was that God's plan all along? Because he not only lived to obey the law, he became our substitute on the cross to bear for all the curses against our law-breaking. On the cross, Jesus took all the punishment we deserved, death, rejection from God's presence, utterly alone. But because Jesus took the curse that we deserve, by, of, but because we've broken the law, now in this great exchange, we get all the blessings for keeping God's law. We get all the blessings that Jesus got for keeping God's law. Look, if we get a failing grade, F, 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 we get Jesus's grades imputed to us, credited to our account, credited to our record, A plus, A plus, A plus. I didn't get an A plus. Yeah, you did. Jesus got it and it goes to you. What? I get that? Yes. How do I get that? You just trust him. You, you say, I need you, Jesus. Well, don't I have to work hard? No, you don't keep the law. No, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We get all the blessings he deserved for keeping the law. We get intimacy with God. We get eternal life. We get glory. He was risen from the dead and we too will be raised to newness of life. And we get a righteousness even if we don't obey because Jesus obeyed for us. Through faith in Jesus, we are freed from the guilt of the law and given all the blessings Christ earned. Look, Jesus is the only Lord who if you, owe, if you receive him, he will satisfy you deeply. And if you fail him, he will forgive you eternally. You see, you don't have to obey the law to be accepted by him. He's the only God who gives us ultimate meaning in life. He's the only one who loves you with an everlasting love. He's the only one who can rescue you from the idols of your heart. And he's done all of this for you. Will you worship this God, the one true God today? Will you let your heart be satisfied in him and rest in him today. Let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, we need you. As a people, we need you. As a church, we need you. Individually, we need you. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who don't know you personally. Maybe they've grown up in church or maybe they're new to church. But deep down, and maybe no one else knows this, but they know that they have not accepted you. They've been rejecting you all along. Lord, it might be a teenager who grows up in a Christian home. It might be a young adult. It might be someone who's been in church for years, but deep down they know they have not embraced you as their, as their God and Savior. I pray that today would be the day that they cry out to you, admitting that they are selfish and sinful, needing of a Savior. 
praying to receive Jesus Christ as that Savior. God, this is why you came. You said, Jesus, that you came to seek and to save those who are lost. God, I pray today, bring some, some of these men and women home. Bring some of my friends home today. Bring them home in your love. Maybe some people feel weighed down by their guilt today. They know that there's sin. They know that there's idols. They don't even know how to deal with them. But Lord, they're admitting today there are idols. There are things getting in the way and it's hurting their marriage and it's hurting their parenting and it's hurting how they talk to their in-laws and it's hurting their work relationships and it's hurting their finances and it's hurting their health. Lord, whatever the case may be, Lord, if they admit that today, I pray you would meet us where we are. We're not here to hear a good sermon. We're not here to sing great songs. Lord, we are here to meet the living God. We're here to meet with you. We need you. Meet with us. Change us. Transform us. As we behold Jesus Christ, may you be all to us that this church would go out as a beautiful reflection of the glory of God in humility, in service, in forgiveness, in patience, in grace, and in truth. Oh Lord, this is our deepest prayer that you would be all to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.